Who are the shady horsemen Venters finds leading Jane Witherstein's favorite horses? Zane Gray, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways, and it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. A $5 monthly donation gets you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thank you so much. The first season of the Arsène Lupin podcast is complete. Binge all episodes of our Gentleman Burglar's own show and tell your friends. Links can be found in the show notes. The National Audio Theatre Festival has awarded a Platinum Award to the Classic Tales recording of 813 by Maurice LeBlanc. It's the highest honor they bestow, and I'm so happy and humbled to have received it. Thanks to all of our monthly supporters who have made it possible for us to create this award-winning content. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 8 of 12, by Zane Gray. Chapter 16. Gold. As Lassiter had reported to Jane, Venters went through safely, and after a toilsome journey, reached the peaceful shelter of Surprise Valley. When finally he lay wearily down under the silver spruces, resting from the strain of dragging packs and burrows up the slope and through the entrance to Surprise Valley, he had leisure to think and a great deal of the time went in regretting that he had not been frank with his loyal friend, Jane Witherstein. But, he kept continually recalling, when he had stood once more face to face with her, and had been shocked at the change in her, and had heard the details of her adversity, he had not had the heart to tell her of the closer interest which had entered his life. He had not lied, yet he had kept silence. Bess was in transports over the stores of supplies and the outfit he had packed from Cottonwoods. He had certainly brought a hundred times more than he had gone for, enough, surely, for years, perhaps to make permanent home in the valley. He saw no reason why he need ever leave there again. After a day of rest, he recovered his strength and shared Bess's pleasure in rummaging over the endless packs and began to plan for the future. And in this planning, his trip to Cottonwoods, with its revived hate of Tull and consequent unleashing of fierce passions, soon faded out of mind. By slower degrees, his friendship for Jane Witherstein and his contrition drifted from the active preoccupation of his present thought to a place in memory, with more and more infrequent recalls. And as far as the state of his mind was concerned, upon the second day after his return, the valley, with its golden hues and purple shades, the speaking west wind and the cool, silent night, and Bess's watching eyes with their wonderful light, so wrought upon Venters that he might never have left them at all. That very afternoon he set to work. Only one thing hindered him upon beginning, though it in no wise checked his delight, and that in the multiplicity of tasks planned to make a paradise out of the valley, he could not choose the one with which to begin. He had to grow into the habit of passing from one dreamy pleasure to another, like a bee going from flower to flower in the valley. And he found this wandering habit likely to extend to his labors. Nevertheless, he made a start. At the outset, he discovered best to be both a considerable help in some ways and a very great hindrance in others. Her excitement and joy were spurs, inspirations. But she was utterly impracticable in her ideas, and she flitted from one plan to another with bewildering vacillation. Moreover, he fancied that she grew more eager, youthful, and sweet. And he marked that it was far easier to watch her and listen to her 
than it was to work. Therefore he gave her tasks that necessitated her going often to the cave where he had stored his packs. Upon the last of these trips, when he was some distance down the terrace and out of sight of camp, he heard a scream, and then the sharp barking of the dogs. For an instant he straightened up, amazed. Danger for her had been absolutely out of his mind. She had seen a rattlesnake or a wildcat. Still, she would not have been likely to scream at sight of either, and the barking of dogs was ominous. Dropping his work, he dashed back along the terrace. Upon breaking through a clump of aspens, he saw the dark form of a man in the camp. Cold, then hot, Venters burst into frenzied speed to reach his guns. He was cursing himself for a thoughtless fool when the man's tall form became familiar, and he recognized Lassiter. Then the reversal of emotions changed his run to a walk. He tried to call out, but his voice refused to carry. When he reached camp, there was Lassiter staring at the white-faced girl. By that time, Ring and Whitey had recognized him. Hello, Venters. I'm making you a visit, said Lassiter slowly. And I'm some surprised to see you've a young feller for company. One glance had sufficed for the keen rider to read Bess's real sex, and for once his cool calm had deserted him. He stared till the white of Bess's cheeks flared into crimson. That, if it were needed, was the concluding evidence of her femininity, for it went fittingly with her sun-tinted hair and darkened, dilated eyes, the sweetness of her mouth and the striking symmetry of her slender shape. Evans, Lassiter! panted Venters when he caught his breath. What relief! It's only you! How, in the name of all that's wonderful, did you ever get here? I trailed you. We... I wanted to know where you was, if you had a safe place, so I trailed you. Trailed me, cried Venters, bluntly, I reckon. It was some of a job after I got to them smooth rocks. I was all day tracking you up to them little cut steps in the rock. The rest was easy. Where's your horse? I hope you hit him. I tied him to them queer cedars down on the slope. He can't be seen from the valley. That's good. Well, well, I'm completely dumbfounded. It was my idea that no man could track me in here. I reckon. But if there's a tracker in these uplands as good as me, he can find you. That's bad. That'll worry me. But Lassiter, now you're here, I'm glad to see you. And, and my companion here is not a young fellow. Bess, this is a friend of mine. He saved my life once. The embarrassment of the moment did not extend to Lassiter. Almost at once, his manner, as he shook hands with Bess, relieved Venters and put the girl at ease. After Venters's words and one quick look at Lassiter, her agitation stilled, and though she was shy, if she were conscious of anything out of the ordinary in the situation, certainly she did not show it. I reckon I'll only stay a little while, Lassiter was saying. If you don't mind troubling, I'm hungry. I fetched some biscuits along, but they're gone. Venters, this place is sure the wonderfulest ever seen. Them cut steps on the slope, that outlet into the gorge, and it's like climbing up through hell into heaven to climb through that gorge into this valley. There's a queer-looking rock at the top of the passage. I didn't have time to stop. I'm wondering how you ever found this place. It's sure interesting. During the preparation and eating of dinner, Lassiter listened mostly, as was his wont, and occasionally he spoke in his quaint and dry way. Venters noted, however, that the writer showed an increasing interest in Bass. He asked her no questions, and only directed his attention to her while she was occupied and had no opportunity to observe his scrutiny. It seemed to Venters that Lassiter grew more and more absorbed in his study of Bass, and that he lost his coolness in some strange, softening sympathy. Then, quite abruptly, he arose 
and announced the necessity for his early departure. He said goodbye to Bess in a voice gentle and somewhat broken, and turned hurriedly away. Venters accompanied him, and they had traversed the terrace, climbed the weathered slope, and passed under the stone bridge before either spoke again. Then Lassiter put his great hand on Venters' shoulder and wheeled him to meet a smoldering fire of gray eyes. Lassiter, I couldn't tell Jane, I couldn't, burst out Venters, reading his friend's mind. I tried, but I couldn't. She wouldn't understand, and she has troubles enough, and I love the girl. Venters, I reckon this beats me. I've seen some queer things in my time, too. This girl, who is she? I don't know. Don't know? What is she, then? I don't know that, either. That was the strangest story you ever heard. I must tell you, but you'll never believe. Vanders, women were always puzzles to me. But for all that, if this girl ain't a child and is innocent, I'm no fit person to think of virtue and goodness in anybody. Are you going to be square with her? I am. So help me God. I reckon so. Maybe my temper oughtn't led me to make sure. But man, she's a woman in all but years. She's sweeter than a sage. Lassiter, I know. I know. And the hell of it is that in spite of her innocence and charm, she's... she's not what she seems. I wouldn't want to. Of course, I couldn't call you a liar, Venters, said the older man. What's more, she was Oldring's masked rider. Venters expected to floor his friend with that statement, but he was not in any way prepared for the shock his words gave. For an instant, he was astounded to see Lassiter stunned. Then his own passionate eagerness to unbosom himself, to tell the wonderful story, precluded any other thought. Son, tell me all about this, presently said Lassiter, as he seated himself on a stone and wiped his moist brow. Thereupon, Venters began his narrative at the point where he had shot the rustler and Oldring's masked rider, and he rushed through it, telling all, not holding back even Bess's unreserved avowal of her love or his deepest emotions. That's the story, he said, concluding. I love her. I've never told her. If I did tell her, I'd be ready to marry her, and that seems impossible in this country. I'd be afraid to risk taking her anywhere, so I intend to do the best I can for her here. The longer I live, the stranger life is, mused Lassiter, with downcast eyes. I'm reminded of something you once said to Jane about hands in her game of life. There's that unseen hand of power and Tull's black hand and my red one, and your indifferent one, and the girl's little brown helpless one. And Venters, there's another one that's all wise and all wonderful. That's the hand guiding Jane Witherstein's game of life. Your story is one to daze a far clearer head than mine. I can't offer no advice, even if you asked for it. Maybe I can help you. Anyway, I'll hold Oldrin up when he comes to the village and find out about this girl. I knew the rustler years ago. He'll remember me. Lassiter, if ever I meet Oldring, I'll kill him, cried Venters with sudden intensity. I reckon that'd be perfectly natural, replied the rider. Make him think Bess is dead, and she is to him and that old life. Sure, sure, son, cool down now. If you're going to begin pulling guns on Tull and Aldrin, you want to be cool. I reckon, though, you better keep hid here. Well, I must be leaving. One thing, Lassiter. You'll not tell Jane about Bess? Please don't. I reckon not. But I wouldn't be afraid to bet that after she'd got over anger at your secrecy, Venters, she'd be furious once in her life. She'd think more of you. I don't mind saying for myself that I think you're a good deal of a man. In the further ascent, Venters halted several times with the intention of saying goodbye. Yet he changed his mind and kept on climbing till they reached Balancing Rock.
Lassiter examined the huge rock, listened to Venter's idea of its position and suggestion, and curiously placed a strong hand upon it. Hold on, cried Venters. I heaved at it once and have never gotten over my scare. Well, you do seem uncommon nervous, replied Lassiter, much amused. Now as for me, why, I always had the funniest notion to roll stones. When I was a kid, I didn't. And the bigger I got, the bigger stones I'd roll. Ain't that funny? Honest, even now, I often get off my horse just to tumble a big stone over a precipice and watch it drop and listen to it bang and boom. I've started some slides in my time, and don't you forget it. I never seen a rock I wanted to roll as bad as this one. Wouldn't there just be roaring, crashing hell down that trail? You'd close the outlet forever, exclaimed Venters. Well, goodbye, Lassiter. Keep my secret and don't forget me. And be mighty careful how you get out of the valley below. The Rustler's Canyon isn't more than three miles up the pass. Now you've tracked me here, I'll never feel safe again. In his descent to the valley, Venter's emotion, roused to stirring pitch by the recital of his love story, quieted gradually, and in its place came a sober, thoughtful mood. All at once, he saw that he was serious, because he would never more regain his sense of security while in the valley. What Lassiter could do, another skillful tracker might duplicate. Among the many riders with whom Venters had ridden, he recalled no one who could have taken his trail at Cottonwoods and have followed it to the edge of the bare slope in the pass let alone up that glistening smooth stone. Lassiter, however, was not an ordinary rider. Instead of hunting cattle tracks, he had likely spent a goodly portion of his life tracking men. It was not improbable that, among Oldring's rustlers, there was one who shared Lassiter's gift for trailing. And the more venters dwelt on this possibility, the more perturbed he grew. Lassiter's visit, moreover, had a disquieting effect upon Bess, and Venters fancied that she entertained the same thought as to future seclusion. The breaking of their solitude, though by a well-meaning friend, had not only dispelled all its dream and much of its charm, but it instilled a canker of fear. Both had seen the footprint in the sand. Venters did no more work that day. Sunset and twilight gave way to night, and the canyon bird whistled its melancholy notes, and the wind sang softly in the cliffs, and the campfire blazed and burned down to red embers. To Venters, a subtle difference was apparent in all of these, or else the shadowy change had been in him. He hoped that on the morrow this slight depression would have passed away. In that measure, however, he was doomed to disappointment. Furthermore, Bess reverted to a wistful sadness that he had not observed in her since her recovery. His attempt to cheer her out of it resulted in dismal failure, and consequently in a darkening of his own mood. Hard work relieved him. Still, when the day had passed, his unrest returned. Then he set to deliberate thinking, and there came to him the startling conviction that he must leave Surprise Valley and take Bess with him. As a rider, he had taken many chances, and as an adventurer in Deception Pass, he had unhesitatingly risked his life, but now he would run no preventable hazard of Bess's safety and happiness, and he was too keen not to see that hazard. It gave him a pang to think of leaving the beautiful valley, just when he had the means to establish a permanent and delightful home there. One flashing thought tore in hot temptation through his mind. Why not climb up into the gorge, roll balancing rock down the trail, and close forever the outlet to Deception Pass? That was the beast in me showing his teeth, muttered Venters scornfully. I'll just kill him good and quick. I'll be fair to this girl, who it's the last thing I'd do on earth. Another day went by, in which he worked less 
and pondered more, and all the time covertly watched Bess. Her wistfulness had deepened into downright unhappiness, and that made his task to tell her all the harder. He kept the secret another day, hoping by some chance she might grow less moody, and to his exceeding anxiety, she fell into far deeper gloom. Out of his own secret and the torment of it, he divined that she too had a secret, and the keeping of it was torturing her. As yet, he had no plan thought out in regard to how or when to leave the valley, but he decided to tell her the necessity of it and to persuade her to go. Furthermore, he hoped his speaking out would induce her to unburden her own mind. Bess, what's wrong with you? he asked. Nothing, she answered with averted face. Venters took hold of her gently, though masterfully, forced her to meet his eyes. You can't look at me and lie, he said. Now, what's wrong with you? You're keeping something from me. Well, I've got a secret too, and I intend to tell it presently. Oh, I have a secret. I was crazy to tell you when you came back. That's why I was so silly about everything. I kept holding my secret back, gloating over it. But when Lassiter came, I got an idea that changed my mind. Then I hated to tell you. Are you going to now? Yes. Yes, I was coming to it. I tried yesterday, but you were so cold. I was afraid. I couldn't keep it much longer. Very well, most mysterious lady. Tell your wonderful secret. You needn't laugh, she retorted, with the first glimpse of reviving spirit. I can take the laugh out of you in one second. It's a go. She ran through the spruces to the cave, and returned carrying something which was manifestly heavy. Upon nearer view, he saw that whatever she held with such evident importance had been bound up in a black scarf he well remembered. That alone was sufficient to make him tingle with curiosity. Have you any idea what I did in your absence? She asked. I imagine you lounged about, waiting and watching for me, he replied, smiling. I've my share of conceit, you know. You're wrong. I worked. Look at my hands. She dropped on her knees close to where he sat, and carefully depositing the black bundle, she held out her hands. The palms and inside of her fingers were white, puckered, and worn. My best. You've been fooling in the water, he said. Fooling? Look here. With deft fingers, she spread open the black scarf, and the bright sun shone upon a dull, glittering heap of gold. Gold! he ejaculated. Yes, gold. See, pounds of gold. I found it, washed it out of the stream, picked it out grain by grain, nugget by nugget. Gold! he cried. Yes. Now, now laugh at my secret. For a long minute, Venters gazed. Then he stretched forth a hand to feel if the gold was real. Gold! he almost shouted. Bess, there are hundreds, thousands of dollars worth here. He leaned over to her and put his hand, strong and clenching now, on hers. Is there more where this came from? he whispered. Plenty of it, all the way up the stream to the cliff. You know I've often washed for gold. Then I've heard the men talk. I think there's no great quantity of gold here, but enough for, for a fortune, for you. That was your secret? Yes. I hate gold, for it makes men mad. I've seen them drunk with joy and dance and fling themselves around. I've seen them curse and rave. I've seen them fight like dogs and roll in the dust. I've seen them kill each other for gold. Is that why you hated to tell me? Not, not altogether. Bess lowered her head. It was because I knew you'd never stay here long after you found gold. You were afraid I'd leave you? Yes. Listen, you great simple child. Listen, you sweet 
wonderful, wild, blue-eyed girl. I was tortured by my secret. It was that I knew we, we must leave the valley. We can't stay here much longer. I couldn't think how we'd get away out of the country or how we'd live if we ever got out. I'm a beggar. That's why I kept my secret. I'm poor. It takes money to make way beyond Sterling. We couldn't ride horses or burrows or walk forever. So while I knew we must go, I was distracted over how to go and what to do. Now we've gold. Once beyond Sterling, we'll be safe from rustlers. We've no others to fear. Oh, listen, Bess. Venters now heard his voice ringing high and sweet, and he felt Bess's cold hands in his crushing grasp as she leaned towards him, pale, breathless. This is how much I'd leave you. You made me live again. I'll take you away, far away from this wild country. You'll begin a new life. You'll be happy. You shall see cities, ships, people. You shall have anything your heart craves. All the shame and sorrow of your life shall be forgotten, as if they had never been. This is how much I'd leave you here alone, you sad-eyed girl. I love you. Didn't you know it? How could you fail to know it? I love you. I'm free. I'm a man. A man you've made. No more a beggar. Kiss me. This is how much I'd leave you here alone, you beautiful, strange, unhappy girl. But I'll make you happy. What, what do I care for? Your past. I love you. I'll take you home to Illinois, to my mother. Then I'll take you to far places. I'll make up all you've lost. Oh, I know you love me. Knew it before you told me. And it changed my life. And you'll go with me. Not as my companion as you are here nor my sister, but best darling, as my wife. Chapter 17 Wrangles Race Run The plan eventually decided upon by the lovers was for Venters to go to the village, secure a horse, and some kind of a disguise for Bess, or at least less striking apparel than her present garb, and to return post-haste to the valley. Meanwhile, she would add to their store of gold. Then they would strike the long and perilous trail to ride out of Utah. In the event of his inability to fetch back a horse for her, they intended to make the giant sorrel carry double. The gold, a little food, saddle blankets, and Venter's guns were to compose the light outfit with which they would make the start. I love this beautiful place, said Bess. It's hard to think of leaving it. Hard? Well, I should think so, replied Venters. Maybe in years. But he did not complete in words his thought, that it might be possible to return after many years of absence and change. Once again, Bess bade Venters farewell under the shadow of balancing rock, and this time it was with whispered hope and tenderness and passionate trust. Long after he had left her, all down through the outlet to the pass, the clinging clasp of her arms, the sweetness of her lips, and the sense of a new and exquisite birth of character in her remained hauntingly and thrillingly in his mind. The girl, who had sadly called herself nameless and nothing, had been marvelously transformed in the moment of his avowal of love. It was something to think over, something to warm his heart, but for the present it had absolutely to be forgotten so that all his mind could be addressed to the trip so fraught with danger. He carried only his rifle, revolver, and a small quantity of bread and meat, and thus lightly burdened, he made swift progress down the slope and out into the valley. Darkness was coming on, and he welcomed it. Stars were blinking when he reached his old hiding place in the split of the canyon wall, and by their aid he slipped through the dense thickets to the grassy enclosure. Wrangle stood in the center of it with his head up, and he appeared black and of gigantic proportions in the dim light. Venters whistled softly, began a slow approach, and then called. 
the horse snorted, and plunging away with dull, heavy sound of hoofs, he disappeared in the gloom. Wilder than ever, muttered Venters. He followed the sorrel into the narrowing split between the walls, and presently had to desist, because he could not see a foot in advance. As he went back toward the open, Wrangle jumped out of an ebony shadow of cliff, and like a thunderbolt, shot huge and black past him down into the starlit glade. Deciding that all attempts to catch Wrangle at night would be useless, Venters repaired to the shelving rock where he had hidden saddle and blanket, and there went to sleep. The first peep of day found him stirring, and as soon as it was light enough to distinguish objects, he took his lasso off his saddle and went out to rope the sorrel. He espied Wrangle at the lower end of the cove and approached him in a perfectly natural manner. When he got near enough, Wrangle evidently recognized him, but was too wild to stand. He ran up the glade and on into the narrow lane between the walls. This favored Venter's speedy capture of the horse, so coiling his noose ready to throw, he hurried on. Wrangle let Venters get to within a hundred feet, and then he broke. But as he plunged by, rapidly getting into his stride, Venters made a perfect throw with his rope and had time to brace himself for the shock. Nevertheless, Wrangle threw him and dragged him several yards before halting. You wild devil, said Venters, as he slowly pulled Wrangle up. Don't you know me? Come now, old fellow. So, so. Wrangle yielded to the lasso and then to Venters' strong hand. He was as straggly and wild-looking as a horse left to roam free in the sage. He dropped his long ears and stood readily to be saddled and bridled. But he was exceedingly sensitive and quivered at every touch and sound. Venters led him to the thicket and bending the close saplings to let him squeeze through, at length reached the open. Sharp survey in each direction assured him of the usual lonely nature of the canyon. Then he was in the saddle, riding south. Wrangle's long, swinging canter was a wonderful ground gainer. His stride was almost twice that of an ordinary horse, and his endurance was equally remarkable. Venters pulled him in occasionally and walked him up the stretches of rising ground and along the soft washes. Wrangle had never yet shown any indication of distress while Venters rode him. Nevertheless, there was now reason to save the horse. Therefore, Venters did not resort to the hurry that had characterized his former trip. He camped at the last water in the pass. What distance that was to Cottonwoods, he did not know. He calculated, however, that it was in the neighborhood of fifty miles. Early in the morning, he proceeded on his way, and about the middle of the forenoon reached the constricted gap that marked the southerly end of the pass and through which led the trail up to the sage level. He spied out Lassiter's tracks in the dust, but no others, and dismounting, he straightened out Wrangle's bridle and began to lead him up the trail. The short climb, more severe on beast than on man, necessitated a rest on the level above, and during this he scanned the wide purple reaches of slope. Wrangle whistled his pleasure at the smell of the sage, Remounting, Venters headed up the white trail with the fragrant wind in his face. He had proceeded for perhaps a couple of miles when Wrangle stopped with a suddenness that threw Venters heavily against the pommel. What's wrong, old boy? called Venters, looking down for a loose shoe or a snake or a foot lamed by a picked-up stone. Unrewarded, he raised himself from his scrutiny. Wrangle stood stiff, head high, with his long ears erect. Thus guided, Venters swiftly gazed ahead to make out a dust-clouded, dark group of horsemen riding down the slope. If they had seen him, it apparently made no difference in their speed or direction. "'Wonder who they are?' exclaimed Venters. He was not disposed to run. His cool mood tightened under grip of excitement as he reflected that, whoever the approaching riders were, they could not be friends." He slipped out of the saddle and led Wrangle behind the tallest sagebrush. 
it might serve to conceal them until the riders were close enough for him to see who they were. After that, he would be indifferent to how soon they discovered him. After looking to his rifle and ascertaining that it was in working order, he watched. And as he watched, slowly the force of a bitter fierceness, long dormant, gathered, ready to flame into life. If those riders were not rustlers, he had forgotten how rustlers looked and rode. On they came, a small group, so compact and dark that he could not tell their number. How unusual that their horses did not see wrangle. But such failure, Venters decided, was owing to the speed with which they were traveling. They moved at a swift canter, affected more by rustlers than riders. Venters grew concerned over the possibility that these horsemen would actually ride down on him before he had a chance to tell what to expect. When they were within three hundred yards, he deliberately led Wrangle out into the trail. Then he heard shouts, and the hard scrape of sliding hoofs, and saw horses rear and plunge back, with upflung heads and flying manes. Several little white puffs of smoke appeared sharply against the black background of riders and horses, and shots rang out. Bullets struck far in front of Venters, and whipped up the dust, and then hummed low into the sage. The range was too great for revolvers but whether the shots were meant to kill or merely to check advance, they were enough to fire that waiting ferocity in Venters. Slipping his arm through the bridle so that Wrangle could not get away, Venters lifted his rifle and pulled the trigger twice. He saw the first horseman lean sideways and fall. He saw another lurch in his saddle and heard a cry of pain. Then Wrangle, plunging in fright, lifted Venters and nearly threw him. He jerked the horse down with a powerful hand and leaped into the saddle. Wrangle plunged again, dragging his bridle that Venters had not had time to throw in place. Bending over with a swift movement, he secured it and dropped the loop over the pommel. Then, with grinding teeth, he looked to see what the issue would be. The band had scattered so as not to afford such a broad mark for bullets. The riders faced Venters, some with red-belching guns, he heard a sharper report, and just as Wrangle plunged again, he caught the whiz of a leaden missile that would have hit him, but for Wrangle's sudden jump. A swift, hot wave, turning cold, passed over Venters. Deliberately, he picked out the one rider with a carbine and killed him. Wrangle snorted shrilly and bolted into the sage. Venters let him run a few rods, then with iron arm, checked him. Five riders, surely rustlers, were left. One leaped out of the saddle to secure his fallen comrade's carbine. A shot from Venters, which missed the man, but sent the dust flying over him, made him run back to his horse. Then they separated. The crippled rider went one way. The one frustrated in his attempt to get the carbine rode another. Venters thought he made out a third rider, carrying a strange-appearing bundle and disappearing in the sage. But in the rapidity of action and vision, he could not discern what it was. Two riders with three horses swung out to the right. Afraid of the long rifle, a burdensome weapon seldom carried by rustlers or riders, they had been put to rout. Suddenly, Venters discovered that one of the two men last noted was riding Jane Witherstein's horse, Bells, the beautiful bay racer she had given to Lassiter. Venters uttered a savage outcry. Then the small, wiry, frog-like shape of the second rider and the ease and grace of his seat in the saddle thing so strikingly incongruous, grew more and more familiar in Venter's sight. Jerry Card, cried Venters. It was indeed Tull's right-hand man. Such a white-hot wrath inflamed Venters that he fought himself to see with clearer gaze. It's Jerry Card, he exclaimed instantly, and he's riding Black Star and leading Knight. The long, kindling, stormy fire in Venter's heart burst into flame. He spurred Wrangle, and as the horse lengthened his stride, Venter slipped cartridges into the magazines of his rifle till it was once full again. Card and his companion were now half a mile or more in advance, riding easily down the slope. Venters marked the smooth gate and understood it when Wrangle galloped out of the sage into the broad cattle trail down which Venters had once tracked Jane Witherstein's red herd. This hard-packed trail, from years of use, 
was as clean and smooth as a road. Venter saw Jerry Card look back over his shoulder. The other rider did likewise. Then the three racers lengthened their stride to the point where the swinging canter was ready to break into a gallop. Wrangle, the race is on, said Venters grimly. We'll canter with them and gallop with them and run with them. We'll let them set the pace. Venters knew he bestrode the strongest, swiftest, most tireless horse ever ridden by any rider across the Utah uplands. Recalling Jane Witherstein's devoted assurance that Knight could run neck and neck with Wrangle, and Black Star could show his heels to him, Venters wished that Jane were there to see the race to recover her blacks, and in the unqualified superiority of the giant Sorrel. Then Venters found himself thankful that she was absent, for he meant that race to end in Jerry Card's death. The first flush, the raging of Venters' wrath, passed to leave him in sullen, almost cool possession of his will. It was a deadly mood, utterly foreign to his nature, engendered, fostered, and released by the wild passions of wild men in a wild country. The strength in him, then, the thing rife in him that was not hate, but something as remorseless, might have been the fiery fruition of a whole lifetime of vengeful quest. Nothing could have stopped him. Venters thought out the race shrewdly. The rider on bells would probably drop behind and take to the sage. What he did was of little moment to Venters. To stop Jerry Card, his evil hidden career as well as his present flight, and then to catch the blacks, that was all that concerned Venters. The cattle trail wound for miles and miles down the slope. Venters saw with the rider's keen vision ten, fifteen, twenty miles of clear, purple sage. There were no oncoming riders or rustlers to aid Card. His only chance to escape lay in abandoning the stolen horses and creeping away in the sage to hide. In ten miles, Wrangle could run Black Star and Knight off their feet, and in fifteen he could kill them outright. So Venters held the sorrel in, letting Card make the running. It was a long race that would save the blacks. In a few miles of that swinging canter, Wrangle had crept appreciably closer to the three horses. Jerry Card turned again, and when he saw how the sorrel had gained, he put Black Star to a gallop. Knight and Bells, on either side of him, swept into his stride. Venters loosened the rein on Wrangle and let him break into a gallop. The sorrel saw the horses ahead and wanted to run, but Venters restrained him, and in the gallop he gained more than in the canter. Bells was fast at that gate, but Black Star and Knight had been trained to run. Slowly Wrangle closed the gap down to a quarter of a mile and crept closer and closer. Jerry Card wheeled once more. Venters distinctly saw the red flash of his red face. This time he looked long. Venters laughed. He knew what passed in Card's mind. The rider was trying to make out what horse it happened to be that thus gained on Jane Witherstein's peerless racers. Wrangle had so long been away from the village that not improbably Jerry had forgotten. Besides, whatever Jerry's qualifications for his fame as the greatest rider of the sage, certain it was that his best point was not far-sightedness. He had not recognized Wrangle. After what must have been a searching gaze, he got his comrade to face about. This action gave Venter's amusement. It spoke so surely of the facts that neither Card nor the rustler actually knew their danger. Yet if they kept to the trail, and the last thing such men would do would be to leave it, they were both doomed. This comrade of Card's whirled far around in his saddle, and he even shaded his eyes from the sun. He too looked long. Then, all at once, he faced ahead again, and bending lower in the saddle, began to fling his right arm up and down. That flinging, Venters knew to be the lashing of bells. Jerry also became active, and the three racers lengthened out into a run. Now, Wrangle, cried Venters. Run, you big devil, run! Venters laid the reins on Wrangle's neck and dropped the loop over the pommel. The sorrel needed no guiding on that smooth trail. He was surer-footed in a run than at any other fast gait and his running gave the impression of something devilish. 
he might now have been actuated by Venter's spirit. Undoubtedly, his savage running fitted the mood of his rider. Venter's bent forward, swinging with the horse, and gripped his rifle. His eye measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. In less than two miles of running, Bells began to drop behind the blacks, and Wrangle began to overhaul him. Venters anticipated that the rustler would soon take to the sage, yet he did not. Not improbably, he reasoned that the powerful Sorrel could more easily overtake Bells in the heavier going outside of the trail. Soon, only a few hundred yards lay between Bells and Wrangle. Turning in his saddle, the rustler began to shoot, and the bullets beat up little whiffs of dust. Venters raised his rifle, ready to take snapshots, and waited for favorable opportunity when Bells was out of line with the forward horses. Venters had it in him to kill these men as if they were skunk-bitten coyotes, but also he had restraint enough to keep from shooting one of Jane's beloved Arabians. No great distance was covered, however, before Bells swerved to the left, out of line with Black Star and Knight. Then Venters, aiming high and waiting for the pause between Wrangle's great strides, began to take snapshots at the rustler. The fleeing rider presented a broad target for the rifle, but he was moving swiftly forward and bobbing up and down. Moreover, shooting from Wrangle's back was shooting from a thunderbolt, and added to that was the danger of a low-placed bullet taking effect on bells. Yet despite these considerations, making the shot exceedingly difficult, Venters's confidence, like his implacability, saw a speedy and fatal termination of that rustler's race. On the sixth shot, the rustler threw up his arms and took a flying tumble off his horse. He rolled over and over, hunched himself to a half-erect position, fell, and then dragged himself into the sage. As Venters went thundering by, he peered keenly into the sage but caught no sight of the man. Bells ran a few hundred yards, slowed up, and had stopped when Wrangle passed him. Again, Venters began slipping fresh cartridges into the magazine of his rifle, and his hand was so sure and steady that he did not drop a single cartridge. With the eye of a rider and the judgment of a marksman, he once more measured the distance between him and Jerry Card. Wrangle had gained, bringing him into rifle range. Venters was hard put to it now not to shoot, but thought it better to withhold his fire. Jerry, who in anticipation of a running fusillade, had huddled himself into a little twisted ball on Blackstar's neck, now surmising that his pursuer would make sure of not wounding one of the blacks, rose to his natural seat in the saddle. In his mind, perhaps, as certainly as inventors, this moment was the beginning of the real race. Venters leaned forward to put his hand on Wrangle's neck, then backward to put it on his flank. Under the shaggy, dusty hair trembled and vibrated and rippled a wonderful muscular activity. But Wrangle's flesh was still cold. What a cold-blooded brute, thought Venters, and felt in him a love for the horse he had never given to any other. It would not have been humanly possible for any rider, even though clutched by hate or revenge or a passion to save a loved one or fear of his own life, to be astride the sorrel, to swing with his swing, to see his magnificent stride and hear the rapid thunder of his hoofs, to ride him in that race and not glory in the ride. So, with his passion to kill still keen and unabated, Venters lived out that ride and drank a rider's sage-sweet cup of wildness to the dregs. When Wrangle's long mane, lashing in the wind, stung Venters in the cheek, the sting added a beat to his flying pulse. He bent a downward glance to try to see Wrangle's actual stride and saw only twinkling, darting streaks and the white rush of the trail. He watched the sorrel's savage head, pointed level, his mouth still closed and dry, but his nostrils distended, as if he were snorting unseen fire. Wrangle was the horse for a race with death. Upon each side, Venters saw the sage merged into a sailing, colorless wall. In front sloped the lay of ground, with its purple breadth split by the white trail. The wind, blowing with heavy, steady blast into his face, sickened him with enduring sweet odor and filled his ears with a hollow, rushing roar. Then, for the hundredth time, he measured the width of space separating him from Jerry Card. Wrangle had ceased to gain. 
the blacks were proving their fleetness. Venters watched Jerry Card, admiring the little rider's horsemanship. He had the incomparable seat of the upland rider, born in the saddle. It struck Venters that Card had changed his position, or the position of the horses. Presently, Venters remembered positively that Jerry had been leading Knight on the right-hand side of the trail. The racer was now on the side to the left. No, it was Black Star. But, Venters argued in a maze, Jerry had been mounted on Black Star. Another clearer, keener gaze assured Venters that Black Star was really riderless. Knight now carried Jerry Card. He's changed from one to the other, ejaculated Venters, realizing the astounding feat with unstinted admiration. Changed at full speed. Jerry Card, that's what you've done unless I'm drunk on the smell of sage. But I've got to see the trick before I believe it. Thenceforth, while Wrangle sped on, Venters glued his eyes to the little rider. Jerry Card rode as only he could ride. Of all the daring horsemen of the uplands, Jerry was the one rider fitted to bring out the greatness of the blacks in that long race. He had them on a dead run, but not yet at the last strained and killing pace. From time to time he glanced backward, as a wise general in retreat calculating his chances and the power and speed of pursuers, and the moment for the last desperate burst. No doubt, Card, with his life at stake, gloried in that race, perhaps more wildly than Venter's, for he had been born to the sage and the saddle and the wild. He was more than half horse. Not until the last call, the sudden upflashing instinct of self-preservation, would he lose his skill and judgment and nerve and the spirit of that race. Venters seemed to read Jerry's mind. That little crime-stained rider was actually thinking of his horses, husbanding their speed handling them with knowledge of years, glorying in their beautiful, swift racing stride, and wanting them to win the race when his own life hung suspended in quivering balance. Again, Jerry whirled in his saddle and the sun flashed red on his face. Turning, he drew Blackstar closer and closer toward night till they ran side by side as one horse. Then, Card raised himself in the saddle, slipped out of the stirrups, and somehow twisting himself, leaped upon Black Star. He did not even lose the swing of the horse. Like a leech, he was there in the other saddle, and as the horses separated, his right foot, that had been apparently doubled under him, shot down to catch the stirrup. The grace and dexterity and daring of that rider's act won something more than admiration from Venters. For the distance of a mile, Jerry rode Black Star and then changed back to night but all Jerry's skill and the running of the blacks could avail little more against the sorrel. Venters peered far ahead, studying the lay of the land. Straight away for five miles the trail stretched, and then it disappeared in hummocky ground. To the right, some few rods, Venters saw a break in the sage, and this was the rim of Deception Pass. Across the dark cleft gleamed the red of the opposite wall. Venters imagined that the trail went down into the pass somewhere north of those ridges, and he realized that he must and would overtake Jerry Card in this straight course of five miles. Cruelly, he struck his spurs into Wrangle's flanks. A light touch of spur was sufficient to make Wrangle plunge, and now, with a ringing, wild snort, he seemed to double up in muscular convulsions and to shoot forward with an impetus that almost unseated Venters. The sage blurred by, the trail flashed by, and the wind robbed him of breath and hearing. Jerry Card turned once more, and the way he shifted to Black Star showed he had to make his last desperate running. Venters aimed to the side of the trail that sent a bullet puffing the dust beyond Jerry. Venters hoped to frighten the rider and get him to take to the sage, but Jerry returned the shot and his ball struck dangerously close in the dust at Wrangle's flying feet. Venters held his fire then, while the rider emptied his revolver. For a mile, with Blackstar leaving night behind and doing his utmost, Wrangle did not gain. For another mile, he gained little, if at all. In the third, he caught up with the now galloping knight 
and began to gain rapidly on the other black. Only a hundred yards now stretched between Black Star and Wrangle. The giant sorrel thundered on and on and on. In every yard he gained a foot. He was whistling through his nostrils, wringing wet, flying lather, and as hot as fire. Savage as ever, strong as ever, fast as ever, but each tremendous stride jarred Venters out of the saddle. Wrangle's power and spirit and momentum had begun to run him off his legs. Wrangle's great race was nearly won and run. Venters seemed to see the expanse before him as a vast, sheeted purple plain sliding under him. Blackstar moved in it as a blur. The rider, Jerry Card, appeared a mere dot, bobbing dimly. Wrangle thundered on, on, on. Venters felt the increase in quivering, straining shock at every leap. Flecks of foam flew into Venters' eyes, burning him, making him see all the sage as red. But in that red haze, he saw, or seemed to see, Black Star suddenly riderless and with a broken gait. Wrangle thundered on to change his pace with a violent break. Then Venters pulled him hard. From run to gallop, gallop to canter, canter to trot, trot to walk, and walk to stop. The great sorrel ended his race. Venters looked back. Black Star stood riderless in the trail. Jerry Card had taken to the sage. Far up the white trail, night came trotting faithfully down. Venters leaped off, still half-blind, reeling dizzily. In a moment, he had recovered sufficiently to have a care for Wrangle. Rapidly he took off the saddle and bridle. The sorrel was reeking, heaving, whistling, shaking. But he had still the strength to stand, and for him, Venters had no fears. As Venters ran back to Black Star, he saw the horse stagger on shaking legs into the sage and go down in a heap. Upon reaching him, Venters removed the saddle and bridle. Black Star had been killed on his legs, Venters thought. He had no hope for the stricken horse. Black Star lay flat, covered with bloody froth, mouth wide, tongue hanging, eyes glaring, and all his beautiful body in convulsions. Unable to stay there to see Jane's favorite racer die, Venters hurried up the trail to meet the other black. On the way, he kept a sharp lookout for Jerry Card. Venters imagined the rider would keep well out of range of the rifle. But as he would be lost on the sage without a horse, not improbably, he would linger in the vicinity on the chance of getting back one of the blacks. Night soon came trotting up, hot and wet and run out. Venters led him down near the others, and unsaddling him, let him loose to rest. Night wearily lay down in the dust and rolled, proving himself not yet spent. Then Venters sat down to rest and think. Whatever the risk, he was compelled to stay where he was, or comparatively near, for the night. The horses must rest and drink. He must find water. He was now seventy miles from Cottonwoods, and, he believed, close to the canyon, where the cattle trail must surely turn off and go down into the pass. After a while, he rose to survey the valley. He was very near to the ragged edge of a deep canyon into which the trail turned. The ground lay in uneven ridges, divided by washes, and these sloped into the canyon. Following the canyon line, he saw where its rim was broken by other intersecting canyons, and farther down, red walls and yellow cliffs leading toward a deep blue cleft that he made sure was Deception Pass. Walking out a few rods to the promontory, he found where the trail went down. The descent was gradual, along a stone-walled trail, and Venters felt sure that this was the place where Oldring drove cattle into the pass. There was, however, no indication at all that he had ever driven cattle out at this point. Oldring had many holes to his burrow. In searching round in the little hollows, Venters, much to his relief, found water. He composed himself to rest and eat some bread and meat, while he waited for a sufficient time to elapse so that he could safely give the horses a drink. He judged the hour to be somewhere around noon. 
Wrangle lay down to rest, and night followed suit. So long as they were down, Venters intended to make no move. The longer they rested, the better, and the safer it would be to give them water. By and by, he forced himself to go over to where Blackstar lay, expecting to find him dead. Instead, he found the racer partially, if not wholly, recovered. There was recognition, even fire, in his big black eyes. Venters was overjoyed. He sat by the black for a long time. Blackstar presently labored to his feet with a heave and a groan, shook himself, and snorted for water. Venters repaired to the little pool he had found, filled his sombrero, and gave the racer a drink. Blackstar gulped it at one draft, as if it were but a drop, and pushed his nose into the hat and snorted for more. Venters now led Knight down to drink, and after a further time, Blackstar also. Then the blacks began to graze. The sorrel had wandered off down the sage between the trail and the canyon. Once or twice he disappeared in little swales. Finally, Venters concluded Wrangle had grazed far enough, and taking his lasso, he went to fetch him back. In crossing from one ridge to another, he saw where the horse had made muddy a pool of water. It occurred to Venters then that Wrangle had drunk his fill, and had not seemed the worse for it, and might be anything but easy to catch. And true enough, he could not come within roping reach of the sorrel. He tried for an hour, and gave up in disgust. Wrangle did not seem so wild as simply perverse. In a quandary, Venters returned to the other horses, hoping much, yet doubting more, that when Wrangle had grazed to suit himself, he might be caught. As the afternoon wore away, Venters's concern diminished, yet he kept close watch on the blacks and the trail and the sage. There was no telling of what Jerry Card might be capable. Venters suddenly acquiesced to the idea that the rider had been too quick and too shrewd for him. Strangely and doggedly, however, Venters clung to his foreboding of Card's downfall. The wind died away. The red sun topped the far-distant western rise of slope, and the long, creeping purple shadows lengthened. The rims of the canyons gleamed crimson, and the deep clefts appeared to belch forth blue smoke. Silence enfolded the scene. It was broken by a horrid, long-drawn scream of a horse and the thudding of heavy hoofs. Venters sprang erect and wheeled south. Along the canyon rim, near the edge, came Wrangle, once more in thundering flight. Venters gasped in amazement. Had the wild sorrel gone mad? His head was high and twisted, in a most singular position for a running horse. Suddenly, Venters descried a frog-like shape clinging to Wrangle's neck. Jerry Card! Somehow, he had straddled Wrangle and now stuck like a huge burr but it was his strange position and the sorrel's wild scream that shook Venter's nerves. Wrangle was pounding toward the turn where the trail went down. He plunged onward like a blind horse. More than one of his leaps took him to the very edge of the precipice. Jerry Card was bent forward with his teeth fast in the front of Wrangle's nose. Venter saw it, and there flashed over him a memory of this trick of a few desperate riders. He even thought of one rider who had worn off his teeth in this terrible hold to break or control desperate horses. Wrangle had indeed gone mad. The marvel was what guided him. Was it the half-brute, the more-than-half-horse instinct of Jerry Card? Whatever the mystery, it was true, and in a few more rods Jerry would have the sorrel turning into the trail leading down into the canyon. No, Jerry, whispered Venters, stepping forward, and throwing up the rifle. He tried to catch the little humped frog-like shape over the sights. It was moving too fast, it was too small, yet Venters shot once, twice, the third time, four times, five, all wasted shots and precious seconds. With a deep muttered curse, Venters caught Wrangle through the sights and pulled the trigger. Plainly he heard the bullet thud. Wrangle uttered a horrible strangling sound. In swift death action he whirled, and with one last splendid leap he cleared the canyon rim. And he whirled downward 
with the little frog-like shape clinging to his neck. There was a pause which seemed never-ending, a shock and an instant's silence. Then up rolled a heavy crash, a long roar of sliding rocks dying away in distant echo, then silence unbroken. Wrangell's race was run. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 8 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.